This is TechSnap, episode 427, recorded on April 12th, 2020. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and of course, I'm joined by Jim. What's up, everybody? Well, Jim, let's start things off today with our continued adventures with AMD. Now, last time we talked about AMD, we were getting pretty excited about their 7 nanometer mobile chipsets. But rumor has it, you finally got a laptop to play with. I did. It's not the laptop I was hoping to get my hands on first. Uh, I really had my heart set on one of the U-series laptops, which is... Uh, you know, that's, that's the normal person, normal world design, a uh, good compromise between performance and battery life, uh, you know, designed to be run with the integrated graphics and last forever in a sleek form factor. Instead, I got one of the, uh, you know, just pedal to the metal gaming laptops with a 4900 HS in it and a discrete NVIDIA GPU. Sounds like a big boy. It is absolutely a big boy. You know, this thing... You would be really hard pressed to tell the difference between it and like an, a desktop Intel i7 9700K gaming system. Um, and if you could tell the difference, you might be like, the laptop's a little faster. Wait, the laptop's faster? Yeah, they run pretty much neck and neck on single threaded performance. But I've always been of the opinion that single threaded performance that everybody obsesses about, you know, it's it's really... It's a misunderstood metric, and it's not quite as relevant as everybody thinks it is. A lightly threaded workload is very important. But how often in a modern operating system are you ever truly running only single threaded? You know, if you have any other tasks going on in the background, you're you're not quite going to get, you know, that that massive single threaded performance that you got in you know an arbitrary test it's going to be a little lower than that because single threaded performance is not multi-threaded divided by number of threads yeah i don't know about you but i've always got at least three electron apps doing something in the background yeah you know an email client uh you know maybe you still got a browser open while you're playing a game you know point being if you want to look at multi-threaded performance looking at cinebench r20 for example the i9 9900k is a little faster than the Ryzen 9. The i7-9700K, it's slower. And these are high-end desktop gaming CPUs we're talking about here, not laptop CPUs. Uh, the closest comparison to the Ryzen 9 4900HS in the laptop world on Intel's side would be the i7-9750H, and it is just laughably far behind. Not, not much better than a half of the Ryzen 9's uh, multi-threaded Cinebench score. That's truly impressive, although it does make me curious, what's the experience of using this like in a laptop form factor? I mean, as someone recording audio right now, first thing I'm worried about is the fan noise. Yeah, you're not going to want to record a podcast with this thing if you can help it. And of course, you know, a lot of this is not necessarily the CPU. It's the entire build. You can't really only look at any one laptop part. You got to look at the entire system it's in. And uh, the system that I have is Asus's uh, Zephyrus G14, and uh, it's a you know maybe a high mid range gaming laptop, and it's it's really not built with any compromises as far as that goes. Uh, the only thing that stops it from being a high end gaming laptop is it's got an RTX 2060 instead of RTX 2080 GPU in it, but uh, the fans are very quick and authoritative to spin up. Uh, this laptop is not interested in dropping a couple of frames 
in the interest of trying to be quiet a little longer than it needed to. Yeah, that makes sense. You got to keep those things cool. You know, most of the time that you're using the laptop, it's not bad. Um, You will pretty much always hear a little bit of, you know, fan spinning. It's not a silent laptop, but um, it doesn't really get crazy until you launch a game or a benchmark. If it's a CPU benchmark like Cinebench or like Passmark, uh, it gets pretty loud. You definitely hear a lot of air moving through the thing. And you might think, wow, you know, that thing is just really spun up all the way. But let me tell you, you're wrong. Uh, when you run a 3D benchmark that hits that RTX 2060, that's when things go absolutely nuts. I will say that, you know, it's it's not a bad fan noise. It's certainly not as bad as listening to like, you know, a one use server from a rack in a data center. Um, there's no hum or rattle or whine or buzz. It's just the sound of the air moving is all you hear, but it's nuts. You can hear the whoosh from a room or two away. Oh boy. Wow. But I suppose in a laptop designed to, you know, get some serious work done, it's a reasonable trade-off. Well, you know, keep in mind here that, uh, work really means gaming in this context, but yeah. <laughs> yes. I-, I think the assumption is that, uh, you're probably going to be gaming with your headphones on. And with that said, the laptop has uh, really good high volume speakers in it, you know, given that they're internal speakers on a laptop. But yeah, I would definitely recommend, you know, wearing a set of cans if you're going to be doing heavy gaming on this thing and don't want to be hearing this, you know, jet terminal underneath your game. All right. Well, you say this is meant for gaming and I'm usually a little bit leery of running AAA titles on a laptop. What kind of frame rates are you getting here? Well, Wes, not all modern games are really that demanding in terms of frames per second. So, you know, of course, the ones that are already getting like 200 frames a second on a mid-range gaming rig, they're not going to be a problem either. I think what you're really asking is about, you know, games that are punishing, like Red Dead Redemption 2. And, you know, that sort of game on 1080p resolution and high settings, you can typically expect about 50 to 60 solid frames per second out of this thing. Wow. Yeah, all right. I'll take it. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. I mean, I'm right there with you with this concept that a gaming laptop is just a singularly dumb idea. But in the comments at ours, you know, I had a reader asking, you know, they were looking to to get a gaming system set up and they they weren't sure. Like, did they want this laptop or do they want to build a desktop gaming rig from scratch? And, uh, you know, for the price for fifteen hundred bucks, you can start from scratch and build a gaming rig with one monitor for about the same amount of money that will get maybe 20 or 30 percent, you know, higher frames per second. But you need to buy the exact right things and get them on sale. And it's going to be an effort to manage it versus literally just go to Best Buy, drop 1500 bucks on this thing and done. You're gaming 50, 60 frames and everything. And you can take it with you wherever you go. And you've got, you know, a full factory warranty. You didn't have to, you know, sweat and struggle over the thing. Yeah, the whole nine. All right. Well, that's enough about gaming on Windows. I'm curious how this thing runs on Linux. I know sometimes with brand new hardware, if you don't have the world's latest kernel, sometimes hardware support can be iffy. I had high hopes for the G14. I knew it was a long shot. I downloaded the Focal Fossa beta since Ubuntu 2004 is so close to dropping. And it's not the absolute latest of everything. You know, it's a 5.4 kernel instead of 5.6. But as far as like normal person distribution goes, it, it's about as new as you can get without starting to get kind of crazy. It's not ready for that yet. I only got about two, maybe two and a half hours worth of battery life. 
Uh, the fans were going nuts pretty much nonstop. Neither of the GPUs worked properly. Neither the Radeon integrated into the 49800S itself, nor the discrete NVIDIA. Um, I had nothing but software rendering. It's just not ready yet. You know, I had to blacklist the Nouveau open source NVIDIA driver just to get the operating system to boot. I have been talking to somebody who has gotten the 5.6 kernel from a PPA and says that uh, he's had a much better experience. Uh, he's gotten pretty decent battery life for the most part, and uh, his Radeon GPU is working, and he's been pretty happy with it. But with that said, when his laptop goes to sleep, once it wakes back up again, he's kind of in hairdryer mode no matter what, because something about the AMD GPU isn't quite working right in terms of coming back out of sleep, and it's just on constantly. So I think the moral of the story is, you know, in six months to a year, this will probably be perfectly decent Linux laptop right now. It's not ready yet. And even in six months to a year, there may still be some problems. You got to remember this is a hybrid dual GPU laptop and Linux is just not very good at handling that kind of environment yet. Yeah, that's certainly a weak spot, but improving all the time. I'm curious, what was the battery life like? Uh, it was about two, two and a half hours for me. Uh, the gentleman who installed a 5.6 kernel, I believe he said he's getting like six. So that's not too bad. Uh, it's it's not the nine and a half that I saw out of Windows, but I don't think that many people are going to be that mad about a six hour laptop. No, that certainly works for me. Well, while we're talking about beefy laptop CPUs, it's only fair if we give a little time and attention to the people over at Intel. And you've been talking a little bit about the 10th generation H series laptop CPUs. Now, I haven't heard about these I'm curious, though. It's one of those things that kind of pains you to talk about it because uh, my mama actually didn't raise me that you shouldn't say uh, anything if you're not going to say something nice. But I, I have the general concept and it's hard to say much good about Intel's H series, although we haven't seen the actual processor in the wild yet. All of Intel's marketing material focuses on a really high clock speed and it, it is pretty amazing. They're looking at five plus gigahertz in the majority of the SKUs for these things. Wow. But what Intel is not talking about at all in any of their marketing material is the actual performance comparison either to Ryzen or even to their own ninth generation, uh, you know, CPUs or the 10th generation U series. Uh, the only comparisons they're giving us are to three year old seventh generation parts. Well, that's not very helpful. No, it's not. And, you know, it is it's certainly an improvement over uh, seventh generation i7s, but um, it's not like mind blowing. You know, I mean, they're looking at overall general performance improvements, you know, and typically in like the 40 percent range, sometimes as low as like 16 percent, depending on which slide you're looking at and, you know, which exact benchmark. And it's, that's that's not a lot for three years later, and it's particularly not a lot when you're talking about this H-series, like, super gamer-tastic. Th this is not like a normal laptop CPU for normal people, you know? This is the crazy, like, on-the-edge on stuff. I want the most powerful one I can get. Exactly. The i9 version of it, uh, they're marketing it as fully unlocked. So if you want to overclock your laptop despite not being able to do anything to add a cooling budget to it, that that one i9 has got you covered, I guess. Yeah, I don't know how that will work. Maybe you have to dip your laptop in oil? Uh, yeah, I don't know. You fry a grilled cheese sandwich on top of it, and uh, you're not really performing until the cheese turns to plasma, I guess. Doesn't sound too tasty to me. Or practical. 
Now, we should probably note that, as you said up front, this info is basically based on their marketing slides and information. But it still seems valid to me in that this is the information they're choosing to present. And it's kind of on them that there's not any good real-world information there. Yeah, it really is. You know, usually your concern with working from marketing slides from the manufacturer is they're going to make things look better than they are. And I certainly hope that's not the case here because they they didn't give us anything when they don't want to compare it to their own last generation product or even their current generation U-series product. The only thing they'll talk about is three-year-old PCs. And when I say PC, I want to be clear here. You know, when I compare the Ryzen 9 4900, I was comparing that thing most of the time to full-on desktop processors. Intel's not doing that here. They're comparing their new uh, 10th generation H-series to three-year-old laptops. And yeah, it's a little faster. It ought to be. Moving on from processors, another ubiquitous component of laptops is, of course, Wi-Fi. And these days, we need the best Wi-Fi we can get. You recently let me know about a development that's actually good news. I know, it's hard to think that anything good could happen to the wireless spectrum, but Wi-Fi 6E legitimately sounds great. Yeah, Wes, it really does. Uh, I'm very excited about 6E, and um, it's really strange watching FCC Chairman Ajit Pai talk about 6E because everything he has to say is relevant and technically correct and on point, and it's just <laughs> what not what I'm used to out of that guy. The short version is, a lot of people get confused about this, think, oh, why are we going back to having a letter on the end? I thought we were only doing numbers now. Ah, right. We just switched to the Wi-Fi 6 world. Yes. But the reason is because Wi-Fi 6E is Wi-Fi 6. It's just on a different spectrum. There's no actual protocol change at all. And that's what's so exciting about it, because by moving into this 6 gigahertz spectrum, we now have 1.2 gigahertz of completely contiguous, uncontested spectrum to play with. So that means everybody can have, you know, 160 megahertz wide channels and lots of them with, uh, you know, no contention, no overlap. And in addition, because six gigahertz, it, um, the RF characteristics are, they're a lot like what we're used to from five gigahertz, but they're a little bit lower range, a little bit lower penetration. It's not really enough to make things much worse in your house, but it just makes it that much more certain that, you know, you truly will have different broadcast domains between like your apartment and a neighbor's apartment or in a larger house, you know, this half of your house and the other half. So your devices are a lot less congested. They have much broader channels to speak on and you can have much higher bandwidth and much lower latency. And there's no finicky, weird protocol crap that may or may not actually work right in the real world. Um, I was also really excited about Wi-Fi 6 and in particular a feature called OFDMA that divided a channel down into a bunch of tones and would, in theory, allow more devices to be active at once without competing with one another. Right. So this is an algorithm improvement on the same spectrum that, in theory, once implemented, if implemented, would allow some better performance. Exactly. But so far, for the most part, it's not implemented at all in the consumer gear that we've seen. And when it is it's usually caused more problems than it's solved. Now, will the vendors fix the issues with OFDMA and, you know, the other new features in Wi-Fi 6 and make them useful in the real world? 
maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe this is the new MU MIMO, you know, from 802.11ac, Wi-Fi 5. You know, everybody got excited for a while about lots of MU MIMO streams, but that ended up being nothing and not really doing much for most people. Maybe OFDMA will be better. Maybe it won't. But Wi-Fi 6E, it doesn't really matter. We don't need protocol trickery. It's just tons of clean spectrum for use. This seems like it might also be an opportunity to do away with some of those legacy protocols, right? I mean, Wi-Fi has been around forever and on the same spectrum. You might have devices talking three different protocols, but you're not going to have those old guys on this new shiny spectrum, right? Exactly. We're never going to see 802.11g, NAC. None of that's going to be on the the 6 gigahertz spectrum. It's going to be Wi-Fi 6 and nothing but. So you're not going to be worried about these older protocols with lower QAM rates that uh, take more airtime to move the same amount of data. It's going to be all Wi-Fi 6 all the time. There's enough of it that there's really no need for channels smaller than 160 megahertz. Even when you have tons of devices, because you've got so much spectrum available, you can have a lot more individual broadcast domains. You can have closer broadcast domains on the same channel that don't compete because the signal is attenuated enough It's really exciting. I think it's probably going to be a year to a year and a half before we really start seeing a lot of this stuff becoming available. FCC is still voting on the rules later this month, but we do know it's going to happen now. Uh, We know Broadcom already has a chipset available for vendors to build devices around. Wow. Intel hasn't released one yet, but uh, they have been developing one for a year or so, and they've got, you know, working prototypes. So... I'm super excited. I I got nothing negative to say about this. Yeah, honestly, it's just really nice to see a positive development, both in wireless spectrum and Wi-Fi in general. It's clearly a technology that's here to stay. And I, for one, am kind of tired of having to run Ethernet everywhere. You know, you can pry my Ethernet cables from my cold, dead hands, but uh, I'm still happy about anything that improves Wi-Fi, both for me and for everybody else. Amen. I tell you, Wes, you know, one thing about that, uh, if we ever get to the point where we can have the majority of our devices on six gigahertz, it'll be great for me because instead of having to limit my house access points all to 2.4 gigahertz on the same channel so that the kids can still watch videos while I test Wi-Fi, there'll be enough spectrum. I can actually have all the house access points doing the fast, awesome stuff and still have plenty of spectrum left over to test new devices on. Talk about a game changer. And it's just really nice to see this spectrum being used really for the public good of all of us. Yeah, Wes, you know, I completely agree with you that it's nice to finally have an entirely positive spin on radio frequency and Wi-Fi stuff coming out of the FCC. Unfortunately, not everything in the radio frequency world is roses and sunshine right now. We've got idiots over in the UK that are firebombing cell towers because they think that 5G the cellular protocol is the coronavirus. Oh boy, here we go again. I mean, really, since the invention of wireless technology, there's been some sets out there that are pretty nervous about it and claim they might be electrosensitive or a bunch of other issues that could be potentially caused by this mysterious radiation. But, of course, the science just doesn't support it. No, it does not. Uh, Microwave and millimeter wave radiation is not anything new, Uh, We have all been, quote, bathing in it, unquote, for longer than cellular technology or Wi-Fi technology has been a thing. Spectrum doesn't just suddenly get invented. 
It's been used by devices uh, for longer than most of us have been alive. And in addition to that, our sun is broadcasting on pretty much every piece of the spectrum you can think of. And you're getting more dosage from solar radiation than you ever will from technology. Certainly something as small as a cell phone. We should probably give people a little bit of a technical explainer here. The key words to understand when you talk about radio frequency stuff is ionizing versus non-ionizing radiation. Now, everything in Wi-Fi and uh, cellular frequencies, they're non-ionizing radiation. And what that means is the frequency is not high enough, the wavelength is not short enough for the individual photons involved to change the electrical charge on the cells in your body when they intercept it in order to cause a chemical reaction. Uh, this is important because that's what gets you cancer. If you're exposed to ionizing radiation like ultraviolet and above, um, then that chemical reaction that can be caused by your tissue intercepting that radiation, that can potentially lead to cancerous tumors. Right, because energy is proportional to frequency, and if you've got enough energy, then you can break those bonds. Exactly. Now, if your wavelength is longer than that, you, you just can't actually have that happen. The only way to cause a chemical reaction then is a literal burn, like the kind of burn you get when you touch a stove. You will absolutely know it when it happens. Now, I do want to stress again, even with the ionizing radiation, by far the largest source of that, it's the sun. People get skin cancer because of ultraviolet from the sun. But all this Wi-Fi and cellular stuff, uh, it's not even close to the ionizing part of the spectrum. It is way down low in non-ionizing. Matter of fact, uh, 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi. You may have noticed that, uh, you know, when you or your spouse runs the microwave, all of a sudden the Wi-Fi in your house stinks. Well, if you're using 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi, that's because they're on the exact same frequency. 2.4 gigahertz was specifically selected for the frequency range that microwave ovens operate at because it's absorbed really well by water and it's non-ionizing. Now, the thing about that is, again, you can absolutely cause a chemical reaction with 2.4 gigahertz. Right. I mean, I don't want to be stuck in a microwave anytime soon. Right. And it's not the radiation that's doing it. It's the literal heat. You have to heat something so much that it burns. It's not a mystery when it happens. No, it's certainly not. And as you say, we're already bathing in the electromagnetic spectrum most of the time. And over the past 15 years or so, many of us have been holding cell phones up to the old noggin seemingly without ill effect. Well, at least biologically speaking, not so sure about our mental health. So Wes, just to give our listeners an idea of how far down the spectrum we are from ionizing radiation, again, remember that you, know, you, you start seeing ionizing effects in the ultraviolet, just a little bit above visible light. Ultraviolet radiation from the sun is what gives you sunburns. Now, violet itself ends at about 750 terahertz. When we talk about Wi-Fi, we're talking about anywhere from 2.4 gigahertz, 5 gigahertz, 6 gigahertz. If we're talking about 5G, we're either looking at low frequency on 5G FR1, which can be anywhere underneath 5 gigahertz, can actually be extremely low in some cases in the megahertz. The higher frequency FR2 is millimeter wave, which is typically in about the 20 gigahertz range. For those of you out there skipping math class, that's a factor of about 30,000. You know, Wes, before we get done just absolutely beating this dead horse into a pudding, I want to make one other point. 5G is not a frequency at all. 5G is a protocol. 
The idea of thinking that a different communications protocol running on Spectrum that we've been using for decades is suddenly going to be radically different than anything came before it, let alone that it causes a virus. It's it, it's beyond uninformed and well into just plain nuts. It really is. And this is just another case of you got to be skeptical when you read these claims. And as always, look to the science. And please don't burn down cell towers. All right, Wes, I think that's enough negging everybody out for the show. Let's get back to the good stuff. Want to talk about FreeBSD? Yes, please. Now, it's been a bit, I'll admit, since I've used FreeBSD directly, but I've used it in the past, and I have nothing but fond memories. And, of course, loyal TechSnap listeners will remember the past co-hosts, Dan and Alan Jude, both major FreeBSD fans. The good news and the bad news is those memories you have of FreeBSD, nothing's really changed that much. It is definitely a blast from the past when you do an install of FreeBSD 12.1 release. You have the uh, the same for those of us in the United States of America. You'll need to either hit page down a few times or down arrow 49 times to get down to the United States in the time zone selector. Oof. And everything else is pretty much just as you remember it. Unfortunately, that includes it being hilariously difficult to get a desktop up and running on it. I uh, cannot recommend FreeBSD as a desktop operating system at all. But, uh, you know, if you want it for a headless server and you just really enjoy its layout or its packages or you're a big lover of permissive licenses instead of the GPL, FreeBSD is there for you. You know, I do really appreciate the development model of FreeBSD, not only the foundation behind it, but they seem to take a slower, more thoughtful approach than the Linux ecosystem. And I think some of that shows up in design decisions, things like KQ versus ePoll, and just the clean layout and consistency, and honestly, the wonderful FreeBSD handbook. You know, honestly, Wes, that's one of those things that uh, I hold kind of an unpopular opinion on. There's a lot of good info in the FreeBSD handbook, but it's really easy to go astray reading it from a newbie's perspective. Uh, For example, when I started trying to get a desktop going in FreeBSD, you know, I came at it from the perspective of somebody who professionally supported FreeBSD on tens of servers for about a decade. So I wasn't starting completely from scratch, but I had never really taken the desktop very seriously on FreeBSD. It was only a server operating system for me. I'd done it a couple of times and the my first try was just yellowing my way through it. You know, I mean, I know PKG is the package manager and I know how to get in a shell. And uh, I thought that I would just be able to package install Xorg and, you know, package install a desktop environment and be done. But it wasn't that simple. And the FreeBSD handbook didn't necessarily help. When you go searching for desktop uh, environments in the handbook, it doesn't tell you anything about dependencies like installing Xorg. Now, I knew I needed Xorg because I'm not a newbie, but most people would not. And, you know, you go through all this talk about how to get, you know, GNOME 3 running and nobody ever says anything about making sure you have an X server. And, you know, what is not a dependency of the GNOME 3 meta package on FreeBSD, Wes? Let me guess. An X server. Nope, not a dependency at all. You know what else doesn't have an Xorg dependency? Ooh, what? The GDM3 GNOME Display Manager. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, and uh, on the command line, I did a uh, PKG search Xorg looking for the plain, simple Xorg package. And uh, it barfed out several pages worth of results. And uh, I tried it again, piped it to less, and started from the beginning. 
And the second entry on the list was an Xorg package, but it had a specific version number attached to it. And I didn't feel great about installing that because, you know, I had some concerns about, okay, well, you know, when there's a security upgrade, if it's associated with a new Xorg version, will I get it or am I tied to this version number forever? I wanted just a plain Xorg meta package the same way I'd installed GNOME 3 from a plain GNOME 3 meta package with no associated version number. Now, the irritating thing is such a thing does in fact exist, but doing a PKG search won't show it to you. I fumbled and fumbled with that for about 10 or 15 minutes, and finally, out of sheer frustration, I just typed PKG install Xorg, despite having done a search and knowing that it wasn't there. Yeah, it is there, and immediately installed. Now, beyond that, uh, it still really wasn't just as easy as installing a couple of packages and being done. I had to change some settings in rc.conf and syscontrol.conf, and uh, I believe one other place where some arcane command or another would need to get inserted to, for instance, make the mouse work. Uh, I had to manually mount the proc file system because GNOME 3 depends on that. And while you can have one in FreeBSD, it's not available by default. And you know the whole thing was just, it was clunky and difficult, and it felt like you're fighting this thing to make it do something that it doesn't want to. Right, you can kind of tell just by that that the majority of use cases are on the server. I am curious if there were things you liked. I mean, one comes to my mind, and that's FreeBSD's excellent support for ZFS. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I love FreeBSD's native ZFS support. Um, You have native support for ZFS on root, uh, even on multiple disk topologies, although I also had a, a, a complaint there. Some people might think it's minor, but the ZFS on root installer on FreeBSD it asks you to select a VDEV type, and the options that it gives you are single disk or mirror or RAID Z, and so far so good, but then it says RAID 10. Now, what it's really referring to here is a pool of mirrors, when you have multiple mirror VDEVs in your pool, and so, of course, your data ends up getting distributed, not really striped, distributed across these mirrors. But it raises my hackles that the FreeBSD installer took the shortcut of calling it a RAID 10 VDEV because you're misleading users pretty badly and it contributes to a lot of these fundamental misunderstandings about how ZFS actually works. There's no such thing as a RAID 10 VDEV. Right, you're building the wrong mental model right from the get-go. And I can maybe understand how, you know, RAID 10 might be a more familiar analogy to those not familiar with ZFS, but if you're not familiar with ZFS, you probably shouldn't be setting it up on root. Yeah, and let's be honest here. Um, It's a little precious to suddenly claim that you're designing this for the newbies when it's free BSD. Nothing about this is aimed at newbies. Uh, You know, you've got to dive into text files and make config changes and figure out so many things on your own or by reading, you know, voluminous sections of the FreeBSD handbook. And FreeBSD enthusiasts will tell you, well, you know, that's great. That's the way that it ought to be. Well, okay, fine. Then let's be consistent with that. Let's get it right. And let's teach people how the file system works, too. It's important. Right. If this is a machine for experienced admins, well, experienced admins expect proper terminology. This one certainly does. And before we move on from FreeBSD, Wes, I will also say, and again, nobody hearing this should think I should never use FreeBSD for anything because the desktop experience is terrible. It's just not something that the distro really focuses on. But I definitely, definitely don't recommend a FreeBSD desktop because even once you get through all this and get it actually rolling, I encountered the same problem that I had, you know, back in like 2003, 2004, 2005 when I experimented with a FreeBSD desktop on uh, some laptops then. Everything is just, 
applications are inexplicably slow to launch. I would see these weird 500 to 2000 millisecond pauses and launching applications that just really should not have been. And I remember that turned me off from the idea of an open source desktop back in my, you know, Windows on the desktop days before I learned to love X. And I had thought it was something that was just common to everything on, you know, Xorg or X11 desktops. It's really not. Uh, I remember it from the very early days in the late 90s on OpenSUSE. Applications would be just bizarrely slow to open. And it was slow again on FreeBSD in the early 2000s. And it still seems to be that way today, but it doesn't have to be. And that leads us in to what you should do if you want a BSD desktop. All right. I'm curious. It's been a long time since I've tried FreeBSD on the desktop. And I think back then I used PCBSD. PCBSD, unfortunately, is no more. There's some interesting history there. So PCBSD was started up by Chris Moore of IX Systems, the folks who bring us FreeNAS. And the idea there was to be a desktop-focused BSD distribution. PCBSD was around in that capacity for a few years, but eventually FreeNAS itself began depending on some changes in the server underpinnings of PCBSD, but obviously it didn't need all that desktop stuff. So at this point, uh, IX Systems had, you know, kind of a a difficult mandate. They needed the server changes that uh, Chris and his fellow developers had made to bring forward for their engineering projects, FreeNAS and TrueNAS. But they absolutely did not want this desktop stuff. And in theory, the whole focus of PCBSD was supposed to be to make an easy out-of-the-box desktop. So what they did is they had a fork and a name change. PCBSD became true OS, and it was really just the server-side underpinnings. And then Project Trident was created that was a fork of true OS with all the friendly desktop stuff glued on top. Now, unfortunately, that state of affairs only lasted for about a year. After a year, the Project Trident developers got frustrated with the hardware support in FreeBSD, which is not as extensive as it is under Linux, and they gave up on BSD entirely and rebased on Void Linux. Wait, what? They rebased on Void Linux, of all things? They did. To be fair here, the the Project Trident developers, they absolutely are BSD lovers. Uh, They liked the way that BSD was laid out. They liked the the principles of the operating system. Right. There's a sort of principled simplicity at play. But it's a desktop OS, and they just didn't feel that they could put up with the lower level of hardware support and the need for older, more stable hardware. So they took a look at all the possible Linux distros that they could use for an upstream instead, and they came on Void Linux, which they decided, in their opinion, although some people might argue Gentoo would be the natural choice, they decided that Void Linux was the most BSD-like of the Linuxes, and they rebased on it in January of this year. Okay, yeah, in that light, I can I can see it, right? Void, uh, Void is also a simple system and might provide some useful building blocks. So the question is, since Project Trident is gone and PCBSD is gone, where does that leave us? I didn't have an answer just immediately on the top of my mind, but I knew there had to be some desktop BSD distros out there. And the one that bubbled up to the top of Google search results for me was GhostBSD. So that was the next one I tried. I like your selection criteria. Wes, when I review these things at Ars Technica, I specifically am trying not to exclude newbies, you know? In a lot of ways, I try to go about things the way that a newbie might. Now, I'm not afraid to inform some of those choices later with some of the additional experience I've got under my belt. But yeah, I, I want to make sure that things work for like regular people and new people trying to get into it, not just for the old Unix graybeards like me. How does it compare to, say, 
the latest release of Ubuntu. I mean, is this a reasonable alternative for someone who doesn't really care what the underlying operating system is? Yes and no. It's definitely a reasonable alternative to somebody who wants to experience a BSD or somebody who's managing BSD servers and, you know, wants the same underpinnings to their desktop environment. I would have no hesitation recommending Ghost BSD to somebody in one of those categories. Now, if it was just a user that like they just want an operating system, they literally don't give a crap. They're just like, I have this PC and I want to put an OS on it and make it go and I want it to be easy and performant and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I'd have trouble recommending GhostBSD over like an Ubuntu. In particular, the software center is, I'm sorry, software station. It's pretty primitive. It works, but you're browsing the FreeBSD packages and, you know, they have the not particularly comprehensible package names that are used on the command line to install them and manipulate them. It's a columnar environment and all the column widths are fixed and they're too wide and everything's off the screen to the right where you need to, you know, if you scroll horizontally to the right far enough to see the friendly name of the package, you can no longer see, you know, the package name from the start or the checkbox that you would click to tell it that you want to install it. It works, but it's clumsy. When you go to actually install the package, so you check boxes next to all the packages that you want to install, then you go up to the top and you click apply and it's not super obvious that anything's happening. Uh, there is like a progress area at the very bottom of the window where some very understated, you know, gray on gray text tells you that it's installing a particular package and you even have like a little progress bar, but it's very easy to miss. So, yeah, it, everything works. It's totally usable. But as far as just recommending it to somebody who had absolutely no ulterior motive and just wanted the easiest distribution... I don't think I could. Well, that is fascinating. I'm very much enjoying your adventures in the BSD land. And honestly, I think I'm going to have to give this one a try. Because the only desktop PSD distribution I had been familiar with prior to this was PCBSD. And I knew it was dead, but I didn't really know what had sprung up to replace it in the ecosystem. GhostBSD may not be the absolute best choice. I can't believe that it gets a whole lot better than that right now, but there are some other options that you might try. Uh, there's Fury BSD, there's Midnight BSD, there's Desktop BSD, and apparently there's also Nomad BSD, uh, which is designed to run persistently off of a USB stick. Oh, now that sounds interesting. Yeah, so for folks who want to get their feet wet in BSD land but don't have a whole lot of prior experience, now I would absolutely recommend, you know, take Ghost BSD for a spin, you know, maybe try out some of these others. And I can't tell you if they're great or not, because I haven't taken any of them for a spin myself yet. But uh, Ghost BSD is absolutely a great way to get into the BSD world. And everything under the hood, even though Ghost BSD has its own repositories, uh, the stuff you learn there, it is absolutely going to carry over to FreeBSD. Everything you do on the command line, it's going to be the same. It's the same package names. It is for the most part, even though it's a different repository, they are the same packages imported directly from, uh, you know, the latest FreeBSD stable. Matter of fact, I even saw my own Sanoid in there. That sounds like just what you want. A clean, nice layer right on top. Well, while we were reminiscing about our operating system past, Jim, you sent us both down a pretty wild rabbit hole of mod files. Yeah, Wes, I can't really remember what got me set off on that rabbit hole myself a week or so ago. 
But uh, you know, back in the late '80s and early '90s, in the uh, in the days of 386s and 486s, I was big into the PC music scene, which most people I think didn't even quite realize existed. Now, this kind of music was played through applications called trackers, and it had a lot of similarity to MIDI's. Uh, you know, you would have a score for the music, and the score would specify playing instruments at a certain pitch. And, you know, certain fade and, you know, all these all these other settings, just like a MIDI might. But the big difference is that mod files and uh, S3M files and XM files after them, they didn't just say, well, this instrument of this number and get matched up with whatever random crap was in a sound card's channel bank. The samples were actually included with the file itself. Right. Okay. so the mod files, then basically a a package set of these presumably high quality samples and then instructions to play them in in what order and with what timing. Exactly. You know, it's kind of like the Music World's version of a PDF file with embedded fonts. Except a whole lot better. Don't freak out here. It's not as gross as a PDF. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, matter of fact, you know, some of these things were just absolutely amazing. Even the earliest mod files. Now, mod is a format that originally came from the Amiga. And it's pretty limited. It only supported up to four channels, which is not a lot. You can play two instruments at one time on either the left or the right, you know, channel of your stereo device, basically. But it is amazing within those very constraining limitations what these teenagers and 20-somethings that, you know, for the most part, nobody had ever heard of anonymously cooked up and uploaded to BBSs all over the world. Right. I mean, these mod files, they were designed to just be as minimal as possible. It's basically just PCM stuck in there so it can be fed right to the Amiga's DAC without having to tax the CPUs. And yet, a lot of this music, it holds up today. It really does. And you know, over in the PC world, in these really early days, you know, a lot of the time, you didn't even have a sound card at all. But I remember playing some of these early mod files over the PC speaker because everything was being done in software, even on, you know, these like 16 and 25 megahertz PCs. Wait, you mean the internal speaker? The internal speaker. Now, I'm not going to tell you that, you know, this is just going to rock the house. But yeah, you could absolutely play really nice sounding four channel music over the PC speaker if that was all you had available. You know, we should emphasize too the creativity behind these efforts, you know, folks working alone, sharing these things on the Internet, not for profit. It's incredible. And it's it's really inspiring. And it just harkens back to a different safer age of the internet you look at some of the metadata in these files and people are sharing their snail mail addresses yeah to be fair wes i mean you know the majority of this stuff it was not a kinder safer internet at all there was no internet you know these things were being uploaded to bbs's and you know a user would visit one bbs and download files and then visit another bbs and maybe upload some of them over there it's it's sort of a competition for cool points, you know? You want to be that guy that discovered this amazing mod or this amazing PC demo and uploaded it to this other BBS where those folks hadn't seen it yet. Absolutely. And it turns out that's some pretty great incentive. Now, these mod files were also mod, S3M, and XM. Uh, they were also used as the backdrop for something called the PC demo scene. The very early 90s, really, is when the demo scene takes off. It starts getting big in Finland, And you've got these teens and 20-somethings that are making incredible hand-coded assembly programs that do just astonishing 3D graphics in software rendering only. You know, no 2D acceleration, let alone 3D, on 16 and 25 megahertz PCs. 
And uh, in some cases, these things fit in only 64K. That was one of my favorite categories of demo. It was called the intro scene. Intros are limited to only 64K. Everything included, the music, the graphics, the textures, uh, you know, the whole nine. It was incredible. And, you know, this isn't leveraging fancy graphics libraries with nice algorithms already optimized for you. This is all hand-rolled stuff picked out of math textbooks and implemented. Yeah, Wes, that was actually one of my favorite conceits from this era is, you know, a lot of these folks, uh, they were literally going to their university math textbooks and they were finding algorithms for rendering uh, these these three dimensional models and, you know, handling lighting effects and, uh, you know, handling different textures of them. And as you would have some amazingly complex object rotating and zooming and panning in 3D or you'd have, you know, a flyby through this landscape they would actually put up, you know, like this banner that was telling you the algorithm that they'd used, that they'd pulled out of a textbook and a hand-coded an assembly. Simply incredible. Now, Jim, I know I had a lot of fun going down this rabbit hole. It was kind of a great distraction from the rest of the things going on in this world. So I think you'll have to share some of your favorite demos with the audience. Absolutely. And, you know, folks, I got to admit, Wes and I had trouble actually recording the podcast tonight because we went down this rabbit hole of watching demos and intros, uh, you know, videos recorded of them on YouTube. And it was hard to stop. We're going to go ahead and play you out with one of my favorite really early mod files called ATNT.mod. I have no idea who made it. Uh, the metadata is insufficient to identify whoever that genius was. And we'll leave you links in the show notes to some of the uh, cooler Farbrosh uh, intros, which was one of my favorite demo scene groups. To go find those links, well, just head to techsnap.system slash 427. And of course, while you're there, you'll find notes from all the past episodes, links to subscribe, and easy ways to get in touch. If you want more Jupiter Broadcasting, well, just head to jupiterbroadcasting.com. You'll find all of our fine productions right there. And if you want more Jim, he's writing over at Ars Technica. And he's on Twitter at JRSSNet. I'm there too, at Wes Payne. And the whole network is at Jupiter Signal. As always, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you in a couple of weeks, everybody. And in the meantime, please enjoy the dulcet tones of 1990s PC music. ATT.mod.